0: Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris.
1: I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker.
0: Stay up to date with us on all of our social media channels, predominantly Instagram, a little bit of TikTok and Facebook, YouTube, which is giving us some trouble right now, but will persist, at least for the moment. And at Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you can help support our work and access our Monday bonus episodes.
2: Conspirituality 77. A homeopathy episode so potent, you can't hear it. To prepare this curative episode, we listened carefully to alternative health consumers for many hours, taking an exhaustive history of life challenges on physical, mental, and emotional planes. We scanned the symptoms against our compendium of disease states and prescribed the precise substances that would mirror them. Then, We took minuscule audio samples from our podcasting apothecary, skepticism, melancholy, and empathy. We mixed these, diluted them a thousand times, to the point at which they became completely inaudible. Then we shook them up and down while chanting the spell of this bespoke remedy, Conspiritualitis Investigarium. So please, don't try to turn up your volume on this episode. You can't actually hear it. And that's what makes it so powerful. But seriously, folks, welcome to our long awaited homeopathy show. And not a week too soon, NFL's leading quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, has just admitted to endangering the entire league by opting to be quote unquote immunized via homeopathy rather than complying with the league's vaccination requirements. He's also a lying liar. There are reports of homeopaths selling COVID 19 remedies through both small ops in the US and federally approved dispensers in India where Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalists mingled sugar pills with astrology to help disguise their negligent pandemic response. Derek takes us on a tour through the strange history of this medicine that isn't there and interviews Jonathan Jerry of the McGill Office for Science and Society on why it haunts us I'll contextualize homeopathy against the broader complementary and alternative medicine landscape while Matthew wonders about the uses of magic.
0: I've talked before about my 25-year battle with anxiety disorder, which ranged from being a nuisance to a full-on crippling war with myself during that quarter century. And thankfully, I've worked that out. But as with any chronic mental health issue, you're willing to try out any potential solution while you're going through it. So I did try homeopathy, being sold on the promise of a one-stop intervention that was, as I was told, it would cure me of my ailment. Edgar was a homeopathic doctor who often took my class, not his real name, but it's been a while and I don't need to reveal his identity. We became friends while he was dating a mutual friend of ours, and one day I mentioned my long-time struggle with anxiety. He said he could help. He was a successful homeopath. Uh, I won't list his celebrity clientele, but they afforded him access to a rarefied world. Knowing that I would be hard put to pay his session fee of $1,000, he only charged me a third of that. And so one evening, I walked up three flights of stairs in his Upper East Side apartment building, and we began. In retrospect, the session reminds me of that scene in the movie The Master, in which Philip Seymour Hoffman, playing the L. Ron Hubbard-inspired character Lancaster Dodd, audits the psychologically unstable Freddie Quell, uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix, Moment by moment, Dodd dissects Quell, taking him deeper into his anxiety and neurosis. My dialogue with Edgar was equally grueling, and this is part of homeopathy. Hanuman wanted that one-hour talk session at the beginning of all of his uh, treatments. By the end of my session, I'm emotionally and physically exhausted. Uh, Edgar had me in there for three hours as he broke me down, asking the same question five times in a row, as if my first response wasn't honest. He prodded and searched and kept me searching. He'd move on and return to the question a minute later, even an hour later. I wanted to scream in rage or curl into a ball. And all the while, he never broke form, stoic and patient and relentless, And to be honest, that was the good part. I recognized what Edgar was doing from religious texts, intentionally breaking me to find some essence of what I am, why I exist, how I perceive myself. He sifted through the scattered remnants of my past, foraging for clues as to why I'm so anxious. What could possibly co-opt my nervous system in such a way as to make me believe that at the site of a particular downtown subway station or feeling the wrong temperature of a breeze on my skin or any of the other numerous triggers I suffered from, that I could very well die at any moment. He can he reconstructed my identity in order to show me the folly of my ways, not in order to control me as say a cult leader would, but in order to steal me against the indifferent danger signals I experienced every day in New York City. And my payment was worth that alone. But then came the cure. You're a vegetarian, correct? He asked me. And at the time, I was. Well, he continued, how do you feel about self-shellfish? Edgar told me about calcaria carbonica, which is a homeopathic remedy that squashes the terror of anxiety triggers among a host of other symptoms, including an inability to keep warm and heavy sweating. And if that sounds strange, well, many homeopathic products purport to treat extremes in either direction. This shellfish concoction claimed to help people from going insane as well as those scared of the dark, neither of which affected me. But that didn't matter. This compound would work, and he knew it. And I believed him. He faxed the order to his compounder, a week later I received a package in the mail and I briefly sidestepped vegetarianism in the name of science. And as you can imagine, it didn't work.
1: Spoiler. Okay, I've I've got some questions, Derek. I mean, first of all, were you familiar with homeopathy at this point? Did you did you know what the purported mechanism was?
0: I would say I had the level of knowledge as some commenters on Julian's Instagram post preempting this episode, meaning I filed it in the, it's a natural sort of remedy. It has something to do with that world that I was involved in. Did I know the specifics that we're going to get into in this episode? No, I did not.
1: I note your ambivalence in your description because you compare the encounter with the master uh, and then you describe a kind of almost religious encounter where here's this guy breaking you down in order to put you back together. You want to rage and curl into a ball, but then you also found that it was worth it in some way. But it it sounded to me like his therapeutic style was also like cures like in the sense that the encounter was grueling and exhausting, like he was giving you anxiety uh, just through the consultation.
0: Right. It's kind of like how B pollen or honey will help you with your allergies, your seasonal allergies, right? The same concept effectively. I've never gone to therapy, so I don't know that experience, but I would say that was the only such session I was in. And from what I've talked to with people who go to therapy or have gone to therapy it seems to me to be a similar encounter. And yes, it did did impact me because there is something about as grueling as it was, as challenging as it was to answer the same question so many times and to really dig in. Once you kind of get it out, you feel better. And I left that session, I remember feeling lighter than I normally did.
2: Yeah, I think that the the tricky thing that stands out to me about that is that in that process of a fairly confrontational uh, self-reflection, you there, some insight will arise, right? Some emotional shift will happen. And it does, it does have echoes of certain forms of cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure therapy that's used for people who have OCD, like learning how to get into the triggered state and then deal with it so that you're not so overwhelmed by it. But. Yeah, it's, 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 your description was, was grueling. And I wanted to say at one point, if you, if you felt like curling up in a ball or screaming, that must mean it's working, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that, again, that, that, that alone was worth it to me. I think if I had paid him for that, I would have felt better than the fact that I paid for the cure. And I'll also add that when the first one didn't work, he tried another and it didn't work. And then he tried a third And it didn't Mm. work. And at that point, I just stopped talking to him about it because I wasn't going to keep paying the compounder for whatever they were sending me.
1: I just want to say that like being around a lot of psychotherapists, I don't know which ones you speak to, but a lot of red flags go up for me in the description of an encounter like this, not only because of its length and intensity, but also because it is really not, I mean, there might be some exposure therapy or CBT elements involved here, but this is not an encounter in which the person is seeking to build relational trust or any kind of modeling of of sort of equitable communication like it's a it is a relationship of of mastery in which you wind up being at a profound disadvantage almost it sounds like traumatized it it it, it sounds by by some of your description and you know one of the things that i know from the psychodynamic psychotherapists that i know is that like it's a real mistake to push somebody really far. Into a place that you don't really know anything about as a therapist. You don't know where they're going to go. You don't know what kind of support they might have. You don't know what you're going to be bringing up. Um, like even this, I, I asked the same question five times, assuming that you were assuming that the patient was lying or not telling the truth or not being clean about themselves. I don't. That's. I don't know. Anyway, I, I'm. I'm really glad that you came away feeling. Um, that that it was that it was worthwhile, but I would just add a note of caution that um, I, I feel like there's some red flags there, and if people are experiencing something like that, I wouldn't categorically, you know, say that say that you know this is this is a safe environment.
0: From my understanding of therapy, and I'm sure you can back this up from what you just said, there is a relationship you develop with your therapist. I think of The Sopranos, <laughs> Tony Soprano, and his evolution of admission over time. Whereas this was just like three hours jam packed right in there of everything. And from my understanding, that's not really how you would do it. You want to flirt a little before you really get into dating, you know, with, with that, in that sense.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, to, to use a figure of speech, I guess, but, but like, yeah, I think it's, I think, I think the, the, the key thing is that you, you're, you're modeling and building trust and, and, uh, equitable, you know, sort of power uh, dynamics, and you're having good boundaries, and you're not pressing too hard, and you're you're also not divulging too much. Uh, it's it's yeah, it would be it would be slow and relational.
0: To understand the origins of homeopathy, let's consider malaria. The oldest known treatment of this deadly disease dates back to the fourth century when Chinese doctors realized that the qing plant alleviates symptoms. Artemisinin, still a cure today, dates back to ancient Chinese texts. In Peru, locals grappling with malaria have long bathed in water that was made bitter by the cinchona tree. And the bitterness is due to quinine, which also gives tonic water its bite. Quinine has more side effects than artemisinin, yet has been used to treat malaria since the 17th century. Artemisinin and quinine are frontline defenses against malaria today. Uh, In fact, quinine costs $2 a dose in most of the world but it also costs $200 in America. That's another story we can do on healthcare, perhaps. But this is where Samuel Hahnemann comes into the picture, who learned about the Synchona while translating the Scottish physician William Cullen's book on malaria. And so Hahnemann left his medical post because he objected to practices like bloodletting and the forceful expulsion of stomach fluid that was popular in the hospitals at that time. And inspired by Cullen's work, Hahnemann slathered cinchona all over his body to induce malaria-like symptoms. And while he likely developed an inflammatory reaction, he was trying to induce the symptoms that mimic malaria. And it was this experience that became the basis of homeopathy, like cures like.
1: Okay, so what is his reasoning here? Uh, Is he thinking that, if you induce the symptoms that you don't have to experience the actual disease? And like, did he feel that he was giving himself malaria or just the appearance of malaria? Is this is there this split between sort of the symptoms of something and the reality of the thing that, that, that sort of, paints a metaphysical picture of what he's doing.
0: I looked for evidence that he thought he got had malaria and I didn't come across any of that, but there is something in developing the symptomatology that mimics the disease that he felt would steal his body against actually uh, Achieving or getting the disease down the line. So remember, he was he was influenced by Edward Jenner and vaccination science at that time. We'll get into later a little, and especially with Jonathan Jerry, why those don't match up. But he was reading those texts, and so he thought that it protected him in some manner against developing a disease that had similar symptoms down the road.
1: Okay, but that would be sort of proactive uh, and so this, the sort of inoculatory idea would be, okay, I've had the symptoms. I've trained myself. I know what that is. I've, I'm, I'm now protected, but homeopathy goes on to be practiced on people who are experiencing symptoms. So so how does he make, yeah. So how does he make that leap or does he just sort of want everything to be true?
0: That seems to be the case. I don't know for sure if he just used that Because he was okay after the inflammatory symptoms, he might have then assumed that if I were to give this to someone who is actually experiencing it, then they would get better as I did.
1: Because they were experiencing the symptoms and I would give them the likening, the the like poison, they would experience them harder or better or something, and then it would be okay? Yes. I'm trying. Help me out here, man. Come on. Like, (laughs) because.
0: It, it it is confusing. I think we're going to tease it apart a little bit more. Uh, the actual origin story of that episode was a little harder to come across besides what I presented there. Yeah. But how he how he makes the leap from uh a disease specificity, which was also being developed at the time, to the metaphysics of the disease is still something that we're trying to grapple with and that's why I think that Hahnemann would be a conspiritualist today if, if he were alive. And that's why he yeah. lines up so well with what we're discussing on this podcast in general. And he did. He approached his newfound theory with religious fervor. Uh, he coined the word homeopathy in an 1807 essay. And three years later, in the preface to his most famous work, which is the Organon of the Art of Healing, And that book remains required reading for homeopathic doctors today. He claimed to be the only person in recent times to take the principle of like cures like seriously. But here's where the leap, Matthew, happens. uh, Because he then said that any physician working in such a spirit, quote, becomes directly assimilated to the divine creator of the world, and wow,
2: he'd, he'd be doing channeled readings on Instagram, no doubt. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's below
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's awesome.
0: Not only was he riffing on the burgeoning science of vaccination, uh, he his spiritual associations uh, again are are just like everything we talk about today. And it should be noted: this is an interesting just evolution of science, that the first known notions of vaccinations were also cited in traditional Chinese texts around the time of the malaria um, cures as well. So despite his belief that he was the sole champion of his ideology, Hahnemann wasn't working in a vacuum. Uh, Austrian physician Anton von Stork speculated that toxic herbs and substances are beneficial in small doses, and this comes from Paracelsus, who was working with the same theory a few centuries earlier. Uh, von Stork's work influenced Hahnemann, but this is where he, the homeopathist veered off in a strange direction. So instead of ingesting small quantities of a substance, Hahnemann eventually removed the active ingredient altogether in his distillations. He believed that less substance equals higher potency. And it was his middle finger to the medical system's polypharmacy, by aiming to only invoke the slightest response possible, he eventually rendered the active ingredient moot through extreme dilutions that worked (laughs) by violently shaking the dilution, which he believed retained a dematerialized spiritual force.
2: Okay, it's all it's all making sense now. It's all making sense. I get it. <laughs> You're welcome, Julian. We'd get there.
1: Yeah, here's the, so so here's the next leap, which is why did he go from he takes real cinchona, smears it all over his body. Uh, he induces a malarial symptomatic response, but then he goes to the principle of like cures like is going to be sort of instantiated through uh, a dilution of the material down to nothingness. Now, so in trying to figure out how does he make this leap, I found one source uh, through something called the American Council of Science and Health that says that Hahnemann turned to dilution conveniently after going through a professional spell in which he really did apply light cures like in the same way that he conceived of it through his own experience with cinchona which was not diluted. Um, now, there's a grain of salt that I want to offer with this report because the byline is uh, ACSH staff. Uh, the article's from 1999. I phoned their office, and the admin there said that uh, the, byline, the byline meant the article was reviewed and signed off on by the council members, and I looked through the list of the council members. It seems to be a few dozen doctors. I don't know much more about the organization, but this article, uh, it, it gives a certain there's something about this description that makes sense to me. Um, So the report says uh, Hahnemann would begin his consultations by putting wearisomely numerous questions to the patient. Uh, The replies, this sounds familiar Derek, uh, the replies would contribute to his building a picture of the patient's condition based exclusively on these replies, uh, the patient's appearance, and Hahnemann's supposedly God-given intuition. For example, if the patient had a gray pallor, was sweating profusely, and said that he or she suffered from abdominal cramps, Hanuman would in effect look up gray pallor, sweating, abdominal cramps in his tome, use cross-references to narrow down possible remedies, and thus decide that strychnine, a toxic alkaloid, was the ideal cure for the patient's condition. But, if strychnine is ingested in significant quantities, it will indeed cause sweating and severe abdominal cramps. And Hahnemann's original records on his patients detail his prescribing many noxious substances according to the doctrine of light cures like. For stomach pains, he regularly prescribed quarter-ounce doses of mercury. He instructed one poor soul to take half an ounce of sulfuric acid in the morning and another half ounce later in the day. Uh, So a purported healing system that Hahnemann asserted God had revealed to him was having devilish effects on his patients. So that's this researcher's explanation of why he moved. He just flipped to you know, uh, dilution because he had found this sublime principle that he didn't want to abandon when it went south. You know, he's, there's too much sunken cost in it. And so he, he has to neutralize it anyway. It's really typical of religious revelation because it's more important to hang on to the ideology and then tweak the sort of performance than to abandon the delusion of the person's mastery, which, which has to feel really powerful for this guy. And and by the way, strychnine, mercury, and sulfuric acid are all indeed used in homeopathic preparations, but of course they should be diluted so that they're not actually there.
2: Yeah. What? What? what can I just ask you guys what year this was? What? What general period?
0: Early 19th century. So 1807 century. is when he coined okay. the term. He died in the middle of this of the century. So you know he was working in the teens and 20s and 30s on this. Everything you describe, Matthew, this is where it really the spiritual idea, idealism enters the picture. I mean, it seems like it was there from the beginning, but for sure we get to the the process of shaking that he called potentization and let 's understand how this works so we 'll think about the most popular homeopathic flu remedy in the world. Ocillococcinum. Um, it is one of France's top selling medicines, but it also rakes in $20 million a year in America. Uh, the remedy is based on French physician Joseph Roy's discovery of, of an oscillating bacterium, which was discovered in the blood of flu victims in 1917. Roy speculated that this bacterium was responsible for a host of diseases ranging from eczema to cancer. Of course, Uh, right. And and I I talked to Jonathan Jerry, who is a cancer researcher, about the the real dangers of homeopathy uh, later. But uh, Joseph Roy discovered that the same bacterium was in the blood of a Long Island duckling. Uh, So today, the process of potentization in osilococcinum begins with the heart and liver of the Muscovy duck. Uh, Technicians mix one part duck heart and liver with 100 parts sugar in water, and then the process is repeated 200 times. Now, to be clear, of all of the Hundreds of thousands, or even millions, of doses of osilocoxinum produced in the world every year. They come; it comes from one duck that is not in any of those vials. So you are actually getting sugar pills.
2: But that's a very that that's a materialist. Point of view. I
0: know. I'm so. Our, you you our need, need to own your just,
2: materialism.
0: <laughs> we just don't have the instruments to measure uh, exactly. homeopathy. Which it's such did. a contra
1: <laughs> It's such a paradox because it's like one duck, which you can visualize. It's like there's the duck. He's he's quacking, and then then he gets subdivided up to nothingness, and there's millions of doses of this thing, and the duck disappears. But there's something sort of very vital and imaginative Mm -hmm. about the duck, but the duck isn't actually there. It's really, it's so mind-fucking,
2: this stuff. He's kind of a guru duck. He's a duck who has achieved pure, non-dual emptiness. He's disappeared.
0: Maybe that's how, because I asked Jonathan this, how vegetarians and vegans who take ocilococcinum can square their belief in this. Because, Yes, they're not actually ingesting any animal parts, but an animal had to be killed to make it. So if you're an ethical vegetarian or vegan, how do you square that? And you know, Jonathan has his response. How, how would you square it?
1: I couldn't. I, I think what's so... But that's, that points me back to the paradox because the, the duck has to die, and yet there's no duck left over. Right? It's like it's, the duck is sacrificed to this process... It's like the Jesus duck, right? So the, the the duck is sacrificed for the healing of the world, and everybody yes. consumes it. But because we can't all have a little nibble of Jesus's body, mm-hmm. it it has to be transubstantiated into the bread, right? Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. what's going on here? Is is we're having this kind of mimicry of of transubstantiation uh, going on? Actually, this reminds me of the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, uh, quote that I that I found that I'll read later. So yeah, we'll get to that.
0: Let's continue about these di- dilutions because right. some over-the-counter homeopathic remedies actually do contain ingredients. Uh, you know, what Edgar gave me did not, but let's look at a little bit of the, their math. Uh, so a homeopathic prescription that claims a potency of 6X means there's one part of an active ingredient per million bits of sugar, water. And by the time you get to 6C, there's one part in 10 trillion. And so I'm not giving any math lessons here. I'm not good at math, but 6C equals 12X according to their dilution process. So you can do the math when you look on your remedies if you buy them. But at 13C, no parts of the active ingredient remain. And a typical homeopathic remedy is 30C. The former U.S. Air Force, or Air Force flight surgeon and family physician Harriet Hall points out that at this level of 30C, you would need a container 30 times the size of the Earth just to find one molecule of the initial active ingredient.
1: That's such a lonely duck. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, <laughs> just one fucking duck right at the center of the universe.
0: 30C is 30 times the size of the Earth. Osilococcinin is 200 C.
1: Okay, but if if by 13 C no parts of the active ingredient remain, all numbers above that are just flying spaghetti monster, right? There's no like there's no it's difference between the force between... of the
0: shaking. It's the force of the shake. It's like oh, a shake the shake weight, you know, the more you do the gee, shake weight, the okay, stronger stronger it gets.
2: It's getting more potentized, regardless of the fact that there, we know there's nothing left there, but the spiritual energy is still there, and it gets potentized by the continuous process, right?
0: Potentized. Ah, thank Potenticized. you. Yes. Yeah, these. <laughs> this has been a language. I was going to say, Derek, episode.
2: we need to give you some kind of award this episode for the number of tongue-twisting, <laughs> difficult to pronounce words that you've included.
0: Yeah, this was not easy. Uh, so Hanuman founded this field by focusing on barks and herbs, yet it has stretched quite a bit in the, pre- in the preceding centuries. Uh, Roy's oscillating bacterium was never actually seen by another set of eyes, and critics speculate that dust was on his slide because, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> because people have tested his theory and, and have never found efficacy. And yet, Borum, who makes it, makes millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars every year on this. um, And they still will claim on packaging that it reduces the severity of flu symptoms. Holistically, Hanuman has pushed back against the medical system in every regard. Again, we can understand that in the wellness industry today. Uh, let's look at some other ideas. He believed that the internal and external realities of one's body are always concurrent, that every element shows apparent physical signs in his belief system. So in his belief system, meaning that if you are sick, your body will show the signs to be clear on that. And this is false. And even doctors at that time knew that because heart attacks and strokes don't have to show warning signs yet can still be fatal all of a sudden. So many chronic issues escape conscious detection.
1: What he wants to be is a diviner as well. He mm-hmm. wants to be able to read the signs in 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 the mysteries of the physical world. But at the same time, he doesn't believe that those material things are 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 ultimately consequential. Yes. It's so exactly, interesting. Exactly. Why? Amazing.
0: His belief in an unbreakable bond between internal and external causes of disease was overturned when he was developing homeopathy. You don't get sick because you're not sufficiently spiritual enough or because you treated diarrhea with an anti-diarrheal instead of a laxative. And just to name two ideas that were being confirmed at that time, germ theory and disease specificity were in circulation at the time of homeopathy's origins. But you know, even when I open my conversation with Jonathan Jerry, there are parts of Hanuman that I can even look back and respect. He has good reason or he had good reason to suspect that his peers were not creating the most effective methods of treatment with bloodletting or again forced expulsion of stomach fluid, and like is an appropriate remedy for like in small doses, but not in no doses, so that's where this mysticism continues in our medicine. But le- before we end this section, let's, let's look at a few other magical ingredients that don't exist in homeop- homeopathic remedies. So oh if, if you're feeling confined and oppressed, you can get a treatment of the Berlin Wall. Come on. Uh, one part concrete on. mixed to the same potency is also said to treat asthma, shifty eyes, terror, and headaches. Of course. Uh, a, f- a few other ingredients. The south pole of a magnet. Uh, eclipsed moonlight is an ingredient in homeopathy. E-
1: eclipsed moonlight, m- meaning moonlight that can't be seen, but it's collected somehow?
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Okay. All right. You co- excellent.
0: You just collect it like you would any other homeopathic remedy. Uh, okay. Tears from a weeping young girl are sometimes that is, so used. That,
1: is that is so creepy.
0: The dog's earwax. <laughs> Julie, you're the dog. <laughs> so, hey, you didn't know he was a pharmacy right in your heart. Um, arsenic, uh, as you, you mentioned, strychnine. Arsenic is a popular – And poison ivy uh, is used in homeopathic medicine. Um, and this all is further confused by the fact that some homeopaths claim that an improvement in symptoms is proof of its efficacy, yet also believe if you get sicker, their treatments are working – so Harriet Hall calls this entire charade sympathetic magic, and she compares it to coffee. If you imagine dumping more sugar into your cup would actually make the coffee more bitter.
2: Yeah. You know, I wanted to add in here, seeing as you're invoking Harriet Hall, that James James Randi at the beginning of, of some of his talks, public talks in front of thousands of people, would swallow an entire bottle of homeopathic sleeping pills before he started talking and say, you know, please do call the paramedics if I suddenly collapse.
1: And of course, he would feel no effects whatsoever. The Berlin Wall thing is really bizarre because now we're getting way out of the realm of naturalism altogether, right? I mean, we're talking about a geopolitical structure with memory.
0: That was endorsed by the royal family, by the way.
1: The the UK's royal family? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, nice. Um, it's a weird one because I, I can personally imagine having a magical disposition towards something additive, right? Involving a building that, you know, if somebody gave me little grains off of Stonehenge, I can imagine taking them in water for, for strength or courage or something like that. But that's not homeopathic, right? That would be, I would be trying to gain the strength of something. But I mean, people were shot against the Berlin Wall. Like, how weird would that get? Do you know of any other weird uh, political monuments? No. I... May, are they, are they going to take the old Confederate soldiers and melt them down into <laughs> homeopathic remedies? For like the universe. If <laughs> yeah, if you're experiencing white supremacy, you can take a little bit of... Uh, General Lee. General Lee's fucking bronze uh, toenail. That's <laughs> so weird. I'll fix you right up.
0: Our last segment on Mr. Hanuman, who is as much a fighter as a healer. I'm guessing he would be a troll on Twitter. I just I just know it. Uh, can't prove it, as Bill Maher says, but I just know it. Uh, he challenged the prevailing wisdom of the medical uh, system at every turn. Uh, he... He also resurrected the disproven idea that miasma or bad air caused diseases like cholera, chlamydia, and the plague. Um, in order to cure a patient, he believed, you need to address whatever miasms disturb their vital force through provings, which was his name for the collection of sugary elixirs that are the trademark of homeopathy. And interestingly, miasma theory was disproven by none other than Benjamin Franklin, who went to France uh, to actually work on that and you know, actually work for months on this and realize that there's no such thing, but he brought it back. Uh, it was all part of his attempt to contradict the growing field of biology that would effectively render his ideas meaningless. But he called all conventional medicine allopathic, uh, it, it, which is a term that is uttered as a derogatory slight of treatments that Contain active ingredients. So more specifically, uh, allopathy refers to opposite cures, like so. That was my anti-diarrheal to help with diarrhea, um, and whereas he would give you a laxative, and some re- a laxative that wasn't actually there. But yeah, nice. he he struck a chord. Homeopathy flourished throughout the 19th century, and it was introduced in America in 1825. In less than two decades the American Institute of Homeopathy was established. Um, The Nazis became fascinated by it, uh, but they ended up abandoning it because they couldn't find any use for it. But it persisted in America. Uh, Provings were classified as drugs in the United States in 1938. Even with all that momentum, the entire field petered out in the coming decades and the last homeopathic hospital closed in the 1950s. And as we got into the 60s, it was nearly extinct, and then the hippies came around. So <laughs> the back to nature mindset of the hippies and the and maybe the Beats, uh, although they were a little wary of the hippies sometimes, um, but it, they they combined in this severe distrust of authority and unnatural medications, which opened the doors for homeopathy to slip back in. Um, and look what was going on at the time. The first billion-dollar class of drugs, tranquilizers, and specifically Milltown, uh, were being shown to have severe negative effects on people, which further stigmatized pharmacology in the eyes of the public. Medicine had advanced greatly. Uh, fewer children were dying thanks to sanitary hospital conditions, antibiotics, and vaccines. But alternative medicine it fulfills an inner yearning for connection to an earth so many of us are actually connected to these days. And and besides that, homeopathy speaks to many problematic issues in modern healthcare. Uh, Conventional psychiatry, for one, it favors pharmaceutical interventions over talk therapy, even though research time and again has shown that talk therapy is more beneficial than pills or Talk therapy in conjunction with pills is more beneficial than just pills alone. Um, you have our food system. It is broken. It has a major impact on our health. Sedentary lifestyles have made us weak and vulnerable. There, there are problems that Hanuman was trying to address, but this belief in ancient medicines or the, the idea, and we can talk about Hippocrates as well, where he pulled some of his ideas from, It denies the fact that we've made real hard-won advancements in science and medicine. This romanticization of nature also denies the fact that the Earth is not here for our benefit. Humans have evolved despite it, not because nature just welcomes us. Uh, The secrets of science have been hard-fought every step of the way for a very long time. And for most of history, disease was an invisible process beyond comprehension. And yet step by step, medicine has been a process of experimentation and failure fueled by an occasional breakthrough. And every advance is just another jigsaw piece in the fascinating puzzle of life. And many of us alive right now have germ theory and disease specificity to thank, not a mysticism of symptomatology
2: yeah I think as we as we try to reverse engineer some of this and in, in seeking to make sense for example of Hahnemann's process it's, it's it's easy to forget many of the sort of scientific uh, principles that you know to the, for the most part we take for granted today about about how a lot of this stuff works. Probably, like both of you and most of our listeners, I have for decades listened to friends and colleagues in in health food stores and at yoga studio, waiting areas, at social gatherings, repeat this trope that whatever their favorite alternative cure is, it's widely respected and very effective. But that a lack of funding for research combined with political suppression by greedy big pharma has kept it marginalized. And in this framing, alternative medicine is kind of the hip, all-natural, underground, underfunded little engine that could, fighting an uphill battle toward well-deserved recognition. And to be completely honest, guys, I've heard some version of this argument come out of my own mouth on many occasions in the past as well. And so I wanted to just look at, does it really hold water? Well, speaking of H2O, let's look at the global homeopathy market it was evaluated at 4.6 billion dollars in 2020 and projected to reach 13.5 billion in 2028 by researchandmarkets.com the much larger global uh, complementary and alternative medicine market of which homeopathy is a slice was reported by grand view research at 82.7 billion dollars in 2020 And projected to grow to over $100 billion this year and then balloon up to $404 billion by 2028. And just as an aside, do do either of you want to hazard a guess at which novel treatment within the CAM, uh, Complementary and Alternative Medicine Grab Bag, is projected to grow the fastest uh, in terms of its compound annual rate due to consumer demand.
1: Uh, fecal transplants.
2: <laughs> well, that, that, that actually might be a good one. <laughs> There's a really good South Park episode this season
0: on fecal transplants. Highly recommended. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it would fit I, I, very well for conspiraturalists.
2: <laughs> the data I've heard is that fecal transplants may be the only way to actually get uh, good gut flora back into your, into your intestines, right? Uh, but it's not, it's magnetic therapies. Oh. Which, despite having shown insufficient evidence for any and all of their marketing claims, which include things like helping with pain, nerve function, cell growth, blood flow, longevity, or to treat either arthritis or cancer, no evidence for any of that. Nonetheless, they're still projected to increase revenue by over 23% annually during the coming seven years.
1: These are magnets.
2: These are magnets.
1: Like on your fridge, uh, yeah,
2: well, precisely. But they're put into pseudo medical devices that you wear on your body, or that you sleep on in your mattress, or that are, are used by some kind of machine to conduct weak electromagnetic fields through your body to cure you of certain things.
1: Oh man, that's like playtime. That's like it reminds me of. Um, did you guys have magnetic toys, uh, yeah. like things that would magnets that would be embedded in little sort of plastic sure. pillars, and they would connect together? My daughter's obsessed with. This. Them. That's got to be some of what's going on, right? Is that, is that you, you, you play with magnets and the magnets are cool.
2: Magnets are magical. I mean,
1: there's a, there's right. that cl-
2: insane clown posse song, right? That has that line magnets. How the fuck do they work right about the mysteries of the universe that only God can explain.
0: <laughs> magnets are used in research to induce out of body experiences. Yes. So what's fascinating is people will use magnets and think it might help nerve function and cell growth and blood flow, which it hasn't been proven for, but tell them that dualism can be <laughs> induced in a laboratory by the same, uh, you know, the same technology, magnet yeah. technology. Yeah. Thank you. Then they would deny that.
2: They can stimulate very specific regions of the brain, Matthew, with, uh, with transcranial magnetic impulses and induce all all sorts
1: of interesting altered states. Is is that because of what iron deposits in your head or something or?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, you know, they they use um, functional magnetic resonance imaging works on the the fact that there is iron in your blood. And so blood flowing to different regions of the brain indicates different types of activity or lack of activity. But I don't think it's so much that I think it's that the fields temporarily either shut down or overstimulate specific areas that will then mess with your perception of reality. Wow
0: this has been repeated dozens of times Matthew by the way and it was first done in Spain I believe about almost 14 years ago and now it's been repeated so and I've actually know at least one person who has been induced in a lab and they said it was actually one he was a metaphysicist but he said it was one of the most spiritual experiences of his life and it was purely because of the magnets
2: yeah right, the, man. The, the place doing the research that I've found the most interesting is called the Karolinska Institute which I'm not sure exactly which country they're in. Sounds maybe Polish or, but Karolinska, they they have a fascinating YouTube channel. So anyway, regardless of the trope that complementary and alternative medicine, which I'll refer to as CAM for now on, is the noble underdog being suppressed for corrupt financial reasons, there's obviously plenty of money based on those figures, right? Being made on this kind of medicine and its claims. And it's only increasing, In fact, the lack of evidence for its efficacy doesn't seem to matter at all. So we can maybe chalk that particular popular objection off the board. But what about the other one? Is the lack of evidence itself a kind of evidence for the conspiracy against uh, CAM? Are Are there studies being done? Or is the Western medicine pharmaceutical cabal using mafia tactics in collusion with corrupt governments to kneecap holistic remedies and modalities? Well let's talk about the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, or the NCCIH. This is the U.S. government agency founded in 1991. Their stated mission, and I'll quote it here, is to define through rigorous scientific investigation the usefulness and safety of CAM interventions and their roles in improving health and health care. And it turns out, they have a large government budget allocated precisely to fund the kind of research that should demonstrate the efficacy and legitimacy of CAM. Since its inception, the agency has been a site of friction between directors who insisted on implementing rigorous science and the politicians who had lobbied for its creation in the first place, like Senator Tom Harkin, who had become convinced that his allergies were cured by taking bee pollen pills, and Iowa State Rep. Berkeley Bedell, who used cow colostrum to treat his Lyme disease. These powerful enthusiasts criticized what Harkin called the unbendable rules of randomized clinical trials, right? Don't use too much science in your science here, saying it's not necessary for the scientific community to understand the process before the American public can benefit from these therapies. And directors who were sympathetic to this subversion of the science uh, that the agency is actually funded to enact, like Wayne Jonas, who served from 95 to 99 and was himself a proponent of homeopathy, tended to be praised by people like Bedell and Harkin who controlled the purse strings or were actively involved in the agenda there. Other agency heads like Joseph Jacobs, who resigned in disgust, have joined the chorus of concerned observers from the scientific community in public critique of the agency, calling it an embarrassment to serious scientists that should not get cover from its umbrella organization, the NIH. Now, between 91 and 2009, the agency's budget grew from 12 million to 122 million a year. And during that 18 year period, with a total of around $2.5 billion having been spent on research into complementary and alternative medicine, hardly any treatments were proven effective. It turns out that while ginger capsules may help for chemotherapy nausea, All other herbal remedies, including echinacea, glucosamine, black cohosh, and salt palmetto, which are variously touted as cures for hot flashes, prostate conditions, memory, immune function, cancer, and arthritis, all of them failed when tested to do better than placebo. The data also showed that acupuncture may help with chemotherapy, nausea, and some joint pain, but that sham treatments that either used retractable needles that didn't actually penetrate the skin or ignored acupuncture points or meridians altogether worked just as well. Yoga and meditation might help anxiety, pain, or fatigue, and that's as strong as any of this evidence gets. As for homeopathy, to their credit, the NCCIH correctly reports on its website that there's little evidence to support it as an effective treatment for any specific health condition, which says a lot, given that some who formerly worked at the agency have pointed out a, a pattern of being reluctant to ever say that a treatment had not been shown to work, right? We still need some more research just to, just to make sure. And that they routinely actually gave grants to alternatively, uh, alternative therapy providers themselves to run those testing protocols, So the argument that you know not enough research is being done and there's no funding seems to be falling apart as well. In 2012, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, published criticism that the agency had funded study after study but failed to prove that these therapies are anything more than placebos. They also pointed out how much money was being spent on scientifically implausible claims. And I wanted to just list a few of these because they're fascinating. And we'll go in ascending order here. So $250,000 spent to test the effects of energy healers on cholesterol fed rabbits. Three hundred and seventy four thousand to test aromatherapy's effectiveness for
1: wound healing. Wait, I'm back at the rabbits. So so wait a minute. So the so the the energy healers were doing energy healing on the rabbits that were stuffed full of cholesterol. Yeah, let's see if they could see whether their or not they cholesterol could, could reduce the left. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Four
2: hundred and six thousand on coffee enemas as a cure for pancreatic cancer. 417,000 on distance healing for HIV patients. No, that's yep. awful. Yeah. I mean, you got to wonder that's, how they That's how, awful. How, how do you set that up in terms of the control group, right? Oh my god.
0: When we prayed for
2: universal peace in my yoga studio, it didn't work. Didn't work. Didn't work. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Got to watch the news to find the results. <laughs> 2 million dollars spent on using magnets for arthritis, carpal tunnel and migraine headaches, 22 million on prayer treating diseases, and a whopping 110 million spent on a range of methods to reduce diabetes symptoms, one of which was expressive writing which we're all fans of, but we don't think it's going to protect us from diabetes. And the important part here is that all, in all of these examples, either no positive evidence was found or no results were ever reported. They have a kind of mulligan, a do-over approach to failed studies, um, which seems to be business as usual there. An example, 52 clinical trials on HIV and cancer uh, returned only eight actual reports listing the results. So you they just tend to move one on.
0: Mulligan. You only get one mulligan <laughs> per round. So this is way past way worse, mulligan territory. <laughs> way
2: worse. But nonetheless, as we know, CAM has insinuated itself into how doctors are trained as well with big money donors setting up programs at major medical universities in ways that make it seem to integrate well with actual medical science. The most extravagant example of this, and I know that Jonathan Jerry is, is going to mention this in your interview, Derek. Has been the Susan and Henry Samueli College of Health and Sciences at UC Irvine. This billionaire co founder and chairman of Broadcom and his part time homeopath wife donated $200 million and began construction last year on what is touted as the first truly integrative health sciences complex projected to occupy nine acres dedicated to training research and patient care and remember this is on the campus that houses a medical school so it's no wonder that the Overton window has moved so much in the last 30 years these therapies and remedies are seen not only by the public but also by many doctors as natural adjuncts or even holistic alternatives to medical science. And this perception is only reinforced by homeopathic and herbal remedies being sold in pharmacies despite performing no better than placebos when tested.
1: Okay, so Julian, a lot of your... Uh, presentation data is U.S.-based, do we have a sense of the sign of growth or the slackening of CAM economies in other countries? I wasn't finding a lot of segmented data like that. The
2: best I could find is that around six million Americans spent over three billion on homeop- homeopathy a year. This is going back a few years now, which meant that it left around one, point, uh, 1 to two billion spent by the rest of the world in that period. Uh, homeopathy is incredibly popular in the EU, which uh, generally has socialized medicine and almost 30% of people there use it, but it tends to go back and forth in terms of how w- whether or not it's included in, uh, in socialized medicine uh, uh, allowances. The Lancet says that 10% of people in India rely solely on homeopathy, Wow! and the market there is growing by 25% per year. So the PR seems to be working
1: everywhere. Yeah, I mean, my first question about this stuff, because I'm going to change direction a little bit, is why wouldn't it proliferate as just sort of raw capitalistic competition continues to fragment the possibility of universal healthcare in places like the States? You know, we talk a lot about the problems of distrust in evidence-based care, but, you know, how much of that is just a purely economic issue? Um, you know, on Twitter this week, I was reading about about people uh, and their terrible medical bills, and somebody was reporting getting a bill for 900 bucks because they waited in the ER waiting room for two hours— and then they left without treatment like i don't even know if they were touched i mean maybe they did the That's triage scandalous. with a yeah they maybe they did a triage with a nurse and got bp taken or something like that yeah, but they yeah. were charged 900 bucks anyway so if if you know, everything is for a fee. Why wouldn't the poorer person go to the kinder practitioner? I mean, maybe not Edgar, who's going to grill you for three hours, but somebody who yeah. somebody who sits with you and, and gives you a holistic feeling of being seen. Well, I think that, that that argument makes makes sense up to a point. I mean, if you need,
2: in my experience of of most human beings, if you have something that's severe enough that you need to go to the emergency room, you typically go to the emergency room you don't you don't go and see your local you know homeopath or or chiropractor right sure so, sure. so it's a, it's a great leveler like that that level of, of discomfort and and fear kind of tends to make everyone go okay let's let's go somewhere where they actually can can help me uh, I agree that the health insurance model in the u.s is broken but my sense is is that the lion's share of the cam market here is driven by people with disposable income. And, they, and part of that is that they can pay out of pocket for products and services that are usually quite expensive and not covered by insurance. I would say that in the West... Uh, complementary and alternative medicine is not so much the medicine of the proletariat it's it's bourgeois as fuck it's the it's the goop folks who are really supporting that whole industry
1: yeah i'm wondering about the precariat though because like i know a lot of us yoga teachers who are buying they're selling they're practicing cam as primary healthcare, because it's actually cheaper than entry-level insurance. Well, there's an important distinction here, right? And I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with this. Some people,
2: some people use it as a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a proverbial sort of statement about the difference between quote-unquote Western and Chinese medicine. They'll say, when you go to the Western doctor, you pay them, you're sick and you pay them to make you well. But when you go to the Chinese doctor they keep you well and you, and you don't pay them if you end up getting sick, right? So the whole idea of wellness is typically that you're doing something to keep up leveling your level of wellness, your immune response, your, your overall balance, right? So I, I, I don't know that, you know, these yoga teachers that you're talking about, they're not, actually providing alternative health care for when people really need help they're providing they're selling the idea that if you do this cleanse and if you use this essential oil and if you you know whatever the different things might be if you take this supplement then you won't get sick because it will keep you healthy and I think that's it's almost like a different lane actually I don't know that it's necessarily related to people not being able to afford health care
1: well I mean the other part is that in your in your story we've got this billionaire yeah who is 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 living in an environment in which healthcare is is a consumer item and it's sort of a la carte there's a buffet yeah and and why wouldn't he be Sort of encouraged to expand that range of consumer items. It's probably how he makes money. So he gives a two hundred million dollar donation to UC Irvine, yeah, and it buys two things. I imagine, which is one, the the validation of the billionaire's sort of fantasy of self actualization, but then also yeah. this feeling that they're filling in the gap in a broken system instead of fixing it, right?
2: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it's a, it's a complicated thing to untangle, right? Because on the one hand, it's, it seems clear to me that this is a bit of a vanity project for his wife that he's supporting. And he's made, he's made public statements to the effect that he didn't really used to buy into this kind of stuff, but his wife has helped him to see how important it is. And he's had some success, maybe with his allergies or something. And so now anytime he has any kind of malady, he goes to his wife and she helps him and she has herself become a practitioner homeopath to whatever extent, you know, she's doing that. It's probably just a part-time gig. So uh, it, I, I feel that there's a, there's a sincerity there. That's probably, this is my speculation. That's probably driving why they're doing it. And they do believe there's a gap in the system. Uh, and they probably do believe that, all manner of you know homeopathic and alternative uh, providers and and people who make remedies deserve to to be paid well and and make a living and they do want to support that I don't know that they're necessarily I don't see any evidence that they're necessarily seeking to themselves profit financially from uh, expanding the market and the a la carte kind of options as you suggest but it's all it's all in there in some kind of
1: relationship right well and all of the concentration draws the attention away from basic questions questions of, you know, public health and vaccine access and you know that's 200 200 million dollars going to medical professionals at UC Irvine that could be doing something Else with that money, absolutely. But I I tend to
2: fall on the side that says, well, they probably don't think vaccines are as as much of as crucial of an aspect of public health as we do. They probably right. think, well, if everyone was just you know had access to to these other remedies, that would be better for the for the larger population.
1: Well, here's where I want to go with this because you know you have both, uh, and I've done it to a certain extent to um, close the door on homeopathy as a practice in terms of its theoretical absurdity and its complete, you know, sort of clinical failure, you know, and in your, this great interview that you did with Jonathan Jerry, Derek, we're going to hear him say things like homeopathy just doesn't work. It can't work. It can't work because the mechanism is nonsensical. It can't work because there's no evidence that says that it works. And, you know, he's right. Uh, he's an expert at what he does. And also there's this, to me, there's a troubling finality to that kind of argument, not because it's not factual, but because I don't think it's going to speak to a significant chunk of the population that we actually want to communicate with. So anyway, I I feel this door is closed, the the evidentiary door is closed. It's almost like, you know, the the door of science can close shut on a particular pathway of understanding the world uh, and... On the other side of that door is a bunch of people who just are going to not be seen anymore. So I, I would like to find some windows here <laughs> because I think that our arguments can start to sound like one of two options, which is, you know, you're telling the homeopathy consumer, hey, you should really just surrender to the evidence, right? Which is what it would feel like. It would feel like, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I believed something that couldn 't possibly work, and that might take you know some emotional bandwidth it 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 might take some effort, but then you know especially when you get into arguments around you know is the Overton window around cam being expanded or moved Julian you know in terms of what 's becoming more acceptable to medical professionals there 's also this sense that i 'm getting from our argument that. Oh it looks like people are getting stupider right
2: yeah i, I don't i don 't think so at all i, I think that there 's a very effective p r campaign that 's very deliberate that has over time has changed language and, t- and changed strategy and sought to make inroads in a way that seems to legitimize something alongside something that has no evidence to support it, or that whenever it is tested turns out not to not to live up to its claims alongside real science based medicine that 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 is a cultural phenomenon that's going on. But we can look at other cultures. For example, you can look at most of the Scandinavian countries where between 1% and 2% of people use, use homeopathy, for example. Where you've just, you've just had... It. There's a difference between being stupid and just being misinformed. And we have a, we have a misinformed populace. We have a very low level of scientific education. Uh, in the States. And there are other countries where that's not the case. And as a result, people look at something like homeopathy and they, and they, they can correctly parse it out and go, yeah, actually that doesn't, that, that, that violates the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. It probably doesn't work. Is it final? Well, no, nothing is final, but it's highly, highly, highly unlikely to be true.
1: I, I just have a hard time given the feedback that we got in previewing this episode on socials mm-hmm. any of the people who are really fans of homeopathy listening to this episode not feeling like they're on the other side of that door but it's
2: really hard i mean i mean do we do we have to approach every question that people i mean just as a general sort of rule about about how how we navigate things as human beings do we have to approach every belief every untrue belief that someone might have in a way that that is never going to make them feel like they're being told, you know what, that's actually just not true because that might hurt their feelings or make them dig their heels in deeper. I mean, I think we the progress we've made from the time when when people when witches were being dunked in the water, you know, and 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 drowned in a in a heads you tail heads heads you lose tails I win kind of thing or whatever the different practices that have gone on, bloodletting, et cetera, we've moved forward because we've just come to a point collectively where we've said, actually, it turns out that's not true. And and I think that there are other, there are needs that those untrue perspectives might fill, but those needs can be, can be understood on their own terms and met in other ways without enabling falsehoods that are potentially quite dangerous.
1: Well, let me... Th- talk about those needs in terms of magic in um, an empathetic way, let's say. And I'll I'll start with a little bit of a critique in this uh, quote that I found from Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court Justice. This is from his medical essays. I guess he was a doctor too. Um, Anyway, uh, he says, some of you will probably be more or less troubled by that parody of medieval theology which finds its dogma in the doctrine of homeopathy, its miracle of transubstantiation in the mystery of its dilution It's church and the people who have mistaken their century, and it's priests and those who have mistaken their calling. As I was going through the literature and preparing for this, I think what really struck home for me was that homeopathy seems to be an ideal type of medical intervention for the highly sensitive person who feels alienated from the clinical world. And I'm thinking specifically about parents here who are you know extremely vigilant about their children's well-being um, and who are like really protective in all areas of life you know I'm thinking of the parent who is constantly on the lookout for a viral or bacterial infection although that's maybe not how they would frame the actual illnesses uh, or understand them given that they're lay people but hold on when you say an ideal
2: type of medical intervention I think what you mean to say is the type of quote-unquote medical intervention that they would be vulnerable to, or that would appeal to them, even though it's not actually a medical intervention.
1: No, no, I think it's actually, well, okay, so take take out the word medical. I, I think it's an ideal type of way in which they might be able to perform the role of healer in their own homes.
2: If within your definition of ideal you include probably won't work, Then maybe.
1: Well, yes, but but that's that's based upon their belief state at the time of applying it, right?
2: Yeah. So you're saying to them it would seem ideal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Right. Got it. You know, I I was thinking about I was thinking about um, this this fellow parent who I don't really know very well who turned turned to me in the schoolyard one day and said, uh, "My child is going on a plane to visit their grandparents in Alberta tomorrow, and they're flying." on an Air Canada plane that's got a big, you know, um, red maple leaf on the back. And so you can visualize it. Right. And I said, yeah. Um, and you know, this, this kid is nine years old or so. And they said, um, can you do me a big favor? And I said, yeah, what, what, what's it, what do you have in mind? And, uh, this person was a little bit shy to say, but she said, the plane takes off at nine thirty. Um, can you visualize it? Um, can you visualize my kids sitting in the plane and when it's about to take off, can you just surround it with a halo of protective light? Uh, that would make me feel better. And I said, sure, I can do that. And she said, you know, I know it's kind of silly, but I just feel that it makes a difference. And I don't know, it reminded me of this because I think there's a lot of parents who have rituals um, I mean, I've spoken about this a little bit in a previous bonus episode where, you know, I talk about my own religious attitudes towards science, but I think parenting adds this whole other level of ritual action that involves safety and wellness And so on. And what I loved about this story was that this person actually admitted to me that she thought it was kind of silly, that it wasn't going to work, but that that was not enough to inhibit her from asking me for this kind of vulnerable favor. This is not somebody who knew me very well, certainly not somebody who had heard this podcast, uh, or she wouldn't have known, you know, which which way, which way I I, uh, track. But, you know, so now I'm a little bit exposed uh, and That makes me a little bit sad because I doubt that anyone who hears this podcast will entrust me with a request like that. And standing in the schoolyard, that's like a meaningful conversation. And so my point is that I think with homeopathy, we have something similarly innocuous but also powerful. And setting aside the stuff around like, will it delay people's treatment? Will people think that it cures cancer? I'm thinking more about the fact that as a parent, you can stand at the rack of bottles at Whole Foods and you can... Go through this complex ritual of safety providing, uh, and look at all of the racks and racks, and you know, pick out the h- tiny hundreds of tiny little bottles with these Latinate names, you know, and and you know they sound like uh, Harry Potter. I've got some of them here: Aconidum Sacatrina, Argentum, Calcaria, aopatorium, lycopodium, Pyrogenium. It just goes on and on.
0: Oculus Repair Hello, Hamura. leviosa.
3: Mangadium leviosa. Lacanum Le inflammaria.
0: Patricicus totalis.
1: Yeah, lots of Hermione in there. I mean, just like when we're reading. Harry Potter I think that the parents standing in front of those bottles also know that these little white pills are fantastical there's there's a part of them that has to know that and so because I haven't I haven't met anybody I haven't met anybody who says who doesn't say well it's just it's they're just they're they're mainly sugar right Uh, I don't know how it works. This is the sort of the folk knowledge and and conversation. And so I think it's a way for them to engage in this process of doctoring with very low stakes, but very high intentionality and emotional commitment. Um, And, you know, and, and parents will say, you know, it can't hurt. And so, you know, I think it allows... A kind of ritual environment that feels more trustworthy certainly than walking into the ER of course when push comes to shove they're going to do that or going to the pediatrician who might be speaking in a specialized language that they don't have access to but you know uh, it's it 's like this perfect system where you can go and you can look up the symptoms uh, you can you can match the symptoms with a me- with a medication it 's open access and so there 's this magical quality to parenting which is also reflective of the magical imagination of childhood and so i don 't think we 're going to get past this unless we crack this sort of mysterious nut of of how how is it magically important to people?
2: I like what you're saying for several reasons. I think that it's it's very kind and it's very empathic. There's a, there's a sweetness to it. There's a there's a tolerance to it. Um, I I, I there, there are several things you said around it maybe being innocuous yet powerful uh that that people who are using it don't really believe that it's going to do something that it's a kind of a role playing game some of it, is, it it's it's interesting there's a there's a split between how people think about this some some people think it's more condescending to tell people that they're wrong and they're being childish and other people think it's more condescending to say oh they don't know any better so we shouldn't interrupt their their fantasies it's I, I I have I have. Misgivings. I'm not talking
1: about interrupting their fantasies so much as trying to understand what is missing from the clinical environment that yes. you are fulfilling by standing in front of the racks of bottles and performing and performing this diagnostic ritual for your child. I mean,
2: there's another weird thing because it's not
1: going away. This is the thing. It's not going away. But it does, it has gone away in
2: certain cultures that have a different way of of thinking about these topics and communicate about communicating about them and legislating about them. So. So, in a way, yeah, it's not going away in our particularly privileged culture where uh, lay people like to pretend that they know that they know something about medicine because this 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 alternative sphere has been legitimized for them and they and it makes them feel empowered. But I think it's actually healthier for them to feel less empowered. And so, no, actually you, you should go to the experts and you should look at what the science says. And if you don't understand it, you should talk to someone who does, rather than thinking you can just stand in Whole Foods. And, you know, decide for yourself which of these magical sounding remedies you're going to give to your kid for their ear infection until it gets bad enough that you actually take them to a real doctor. So I, and I also, I, you know, I have to say, I, I had a child, a, my, my wife had a child. I was involved in the birth of my <laughs> child uh, about three and a half years ago. Um, I was just in the, in, in the emergency room and then in the hospital with my wife who got a diagnosis for multiple sclerosis in the last 10 days. Yeah. Prior to that, we were in and out of the hospital with my daughter. She spent three nights there. We had 10 days of back and forth to the ER with terrible fevers Um, she had a a complex pneumonia that it took them about six days to figure out exactly what was going on. Her stomach was bloated. It's been a terrible experience. Every single one of these interactions with the medical establishment that I've had in the last several years has been incredible. I feel like there's this really unfair caricature of what the of what doctors are like, the doctors have been empathic. They've been kind. They've been respectful. They've been great communicators. All of the nurses have been incredible. Every single procedure we've gone through, they've explained it to us carefully. There's been a, a sense of back and forth, and and consent, and asking what would make us more comfortable, and navigating through that process together.
1: I have very similar experiences, by the way, yeah, in yeah. in in the in the births of of our two children and some other instances that I've had. But yeah. you, you we can't ignore that our mentions our social media feeds, uh, our, our social circles are filled with stories of medical trauma, yes. where people say repeatedly, "I've had exactly the opposite experience yes. to the experience that Julian and Matthew are describing." And so, I don't know that that's going to bridge any gaps, right? Like, I like sh- sharing good stories is is good. I don't think that
2: enabling magical thinking. Uh, is, is the solution for aspects of the medical system, or like uh, people within the medical system that are not skillful or have maybe you know been been bad at their jobs or bad at communicating
1: i mean last thing that I would say is that Derek brought up the report about the French hospital giving homeopathy to chemo patients. And, like, I don't know what prognosis that takes place under, but it made me think about that threshold of terminal illness where medicine gives way to. A kind of different thing, like magic or ritual, or things that cannot be measured. Because at a certain point in terminal treatment, the evidence-based practitioner has to say, "There's nothing more we know how to do." And at that point, calls are made to hospice care. The protocols change. Uh, in come the harps, the aromatherapies, whatever lifts the person up. Sure, right. Yeah. And so, I feel like that just proves that within the paradigm, the clinical paradigm, there at the margins, there is going to be the need and the presence for something beyond evidence-based care that people are aware of and reach for. And so, I don't know, maybe I can round up by saying it feels like I've got three ways of looking at CAM now, which is, geez, it's it's crap that it's taking up space and money in relation to evidence-based care and drawing attention and cash away from public health. That's a problem. Uh, also, wow, it's plugging the economic and psychosocial gaps in predatory medicine. Uh, and also, it's probably always going to be with us, so long as it addresses existential questions beyond the scope of evidence-based practice.
3: You
0: bring up an important point I'll conclude with Matthew, which is, it is going to be with us. Magical thinking is part of our DNA, really. Uh, and to try to get it across, there there are so many different ways, Julian, you brought up, you know, there, there are different ways of seeming to be uh, a little bit derogatory toward people, and they're going to take it differently. I can say the same thing to different people, and they're going to read it completely differently depending on their experiences. So this is No easy task. It reminds me of a quote that uh, pediatrics professor Paul Offit wrote, which was, there's no such thing as conventional or, or alternative or complementary or integrative or holistic medicine. There's only medicine that works and medicine that does not
1: that's the closing door. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we can expand medicine to a lot of different things. And maybe we should do an episode on placebo. I know we've talked about that because I yeah, think right. Jerry gives the best definition of placebo. I think I've heard. In yeah, me too. To that. And the reality is our body's most effective therapeutic agent is our body itself. Eula Biss writes beautifully about that fact and her father, who is a physician, Um, And these are the biological processes that we've evolved over millions of years of trial and error. So in reality, if you're spending $15 for a bottle of Sambucus at Whole Foods, you're probably just wasting $15. And if the placebo response kicks in and you feel better after taking it, then it might be worth it. But if you're using homeopathy... To treat cancers, as I talk with Jonathan about, there's a real problem. And I just hope that in these conversations, whether people agree to us, with us or not, in their relationships to medicine and healing, I just hope it doesn't get to that point where they have to really be harmed or lose someone because they've taken these remedies that don't work. And then they only find out when it's too late. Jerry is a science communicator with the McGill Office for Science and Society. He dedicates his time and work to separating sense from nonsense in terms of science communication. Uh, he comes from a background of cancer research, human genetics, rehabilitation research, and forcenic biology. Uh, he used to create, write, and host the YouTube show Crack Science. I've included one of the episodes. On homeopathy, in fact, in the show notes, and I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, When I started Conspirituality with Matthew and Julian, I found Jonathan's work shortly thereafter. I loved his crack science column. This episode on YouTube really shows what we talk about in terms of what homeopathy actually is and the dilution. Process. Uh, he's been featured in the BBC, CBC, Wired, Global TV, all over the place. He talks to the press often, and I'm really happy he took some time out to talk to Conspirituality about. Um, A few aspects of homeopathy. We've already talked about it a bunch, but he brings real clarity to science communication. I also recommend following him on Twitter at Crack Science. I read all of the articles that he writes and puts out about the broader science world and the misinformation and disinformation out there. (laughs) What a day to talk to you. I don't know how closely you're following this Aaron
3: Rodgers ordeal. <laughs> I, I actually ha- I had to look it up earlier today because I know I was I knew there was gonna be a question about this and I don't follow sports at all. Um, so I, I read about this. I was like, oh okay, yeah, okay, figures. Yeah.
0: He just did a forty-five minute ...segment on this sports podcast. I oh, really? I am not a sports follower either. Uh, it actually is broken down. Someone on Twitter, Computer Cowboy, that I retweeted... ...shared the entire play-by-play... ...and I just watched it before talking to you. You don't have a ton of reference with this... ...but let's just start here. Someone tells you that they're immunized from COVID-19... ...because they've taken a homeopathic remedy... What is your response?
3: So, I mean, my response internally is to to think, no, you're not immunized. Uh, But what I will ask the person is, what exactly did you take? Uh, Because the word homeopathic uh, is often misunderstood Uh, I think a lot of people believe that it just means natural stuff. Uh, So they will equate natural health products with homeopathy and vice versa. Uh, But homeopathy is a very, very specific uh, system of beliefs with very uh, clear and and nonsensical principles behind it. Uh, So I would be curious to know what it is that they took and then I could explain to them why that uh, did not uh, give them immunity against the coronavirus.
0: Before the interview runs in the episode, we'll be doing a history of homeopathy. I actually find Samuel Hahnemann somewhat endearing, but also a bit off.
3: Yeah, there, there, there are good things about about him and there are some really diluted stuff
0: in there. <laughs> yes, I, I want to go a little in the history, but the first thing to mind was when I realized I wanted to talk to you for this episode... I found some of your writings, but I also found your 2014 video about homeopathy, and I, I hope your friend has recovered from his alcohol poisoning. Uh, but- <laughs> <laughs> yes, he has, and we're, we're
3: still friends. And <laughs> Okay, wonderful. wonderful. He's, he's, he's fine now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but one thing that's interesting about homeopathy is it became hugely popular in Europe and America, and then in the 1950s, it almost completely disappeared. <laughs> and then in the late 60s, it came back with a Vengeance, hmm. and why do you think it's grown in popularity since that point in the late
3: 1960s? That's a good question that I, I don't have an answer to. You know, I, I I do have to wonder. Um, I don't know. I I have to, I have to wonder if if it is in response to um, the growth of the pharmaceutical industry, if this is seen as sort of a a rebellious pushback against it, uh, if it's just. Uh, better marketing on the um, uh, by by the companies that are making these uh, these remedies and by the homeopaths themselves. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't really know.
0: Well, there w- there was an inflection point, and this was part of the research for my last book, so I'm a little more aware of the specifics of that. In terms of in the 1950s, you had this surge of tranquilizers that americans were taking and it was in the mid to late 60s that they found out how damaging Mm. tranquilizers were which eventually led to the creation of antidepressants which has its own problems so let me reframe that question then why do you think homeopathy is so popular now and it persists despite being you know completely unproven I can't even call it medicine really,
3: no, no, I mean that, that's why i you know i say I say remedies, I say products uh because yeah it is it is not medicine um I, I think there are two reasons why it remains popular i mean the first one is the people who understand what it is um I think they respond to it because they see it as uh as something that is effective and one hundred percent safe. Um, because that's how it's been sold to them um, and and they may have um, they may have a lot of skepticism toward the pharmaceutical industry which I share to a certain extent but certainly not to their extent um, and then there are the people who are buying these products and they're being deceived because they don't know what homeopathy is. Uh, they just uh, they just think that because they are being sold in pharmacies and they 're often being sold next to actual pharmaceuticals that they clearly must work uh, otherwise they wouldn 't be there they wouldn't be uh, they wouldn 't have a, a, the approval of the regulatory agencies to be there and so and when you tell them. Uh, what homeopathy actually is, they feel deceived, uh, they feel cheated. Uh, so, so I think there are two main reasons why people gravitate toward these products.
0: Matthew preempted this episode on Instagram this morning. And as expected, we've gotten some pushback from homeopathic pr- practitioners or or people who have experienced uh, what they consider some success with these uh, remedies. Uh, They invoke the placebo effect, which I am personally fascinated by. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about someone who takes homeopathic products and believes it's doing something and then will say, I don't care if it's the placebo response?
3: The the, the placebo response, the invocation of of the placebo response is very interesting in this context because... Uh, what placebo typically means in uh, biomedical research is uh, the idea of removing non-specific effects to see if the intervention that you are uh, that you are studying has a direct effect on the condition that is being studied. Uh, So these are things uh, like uh, wanting to please the investigator, uh, like regression to the mean of having symptoms that go back to their mean value because they were at their extreme value, of self-limiting illnesses, of of using different kinds of treatments, interventions, all those kinds of things uh, that have nothing to do with the intervention itself, but that happen naturally. And so you want to get rid of those. That's why you have a placebo group to to take those into account. And then you and subtract that from the intervention group to see if at the end of this subtraction, you are left with an actual specific effect. And because uh, when we test uh, interventions like homeopathy, for example, in, uh, in rigorous studies, um, there is no difference between the placebo group and the, uh, the group that got the, the homeopathy. Um, and this is true also for other kind of alternative uh, healing modalities, uh, what has happened is that they have jumped on this and they have sort of uh, changed the definition of the placebo effect by saying, well, the reason that it works is through the placebo effect. See, see, there's a placebo effect there. You see it, it's in the placebo group. And that's why, that's the thing. Homeopathy works through the placebo effect. Um, but But this idea of, the mind influencing the body and sort of healing the body uh, through the strength of belief is not something that I have seen being well justified scientifically. Um, it seems to me from what I've read that that the placebo effects are mostly everything else. And there's not a lot of that, you know, mind influencing uh, the body uh, left at the end of this, uh, this, this this definition. And the problem with believing that uh, or, or simply saying to yourself, well, you know, it works with a placebo effect, I'm happy with that is that there are real harms uh, that can be caused by uh, by resorting to homeopathy uh, you know you you may end up delaying real treatment and if your condition is something that can worsen and that can be treated medically then you 're delaying an actual treatment and, you, and your condition can worsen uh, there 's also the financial aspect right so if you care about um, about about consumer advocacy, consumer protection. These uh, remedies, these products, they are not free. They cost money. And if you go and see a homeopath, that is again money out of your pocket for something that does not work. Um, there's the, the the broader philosophical argument that believing nonsense is harmful. You want you know there is value in in knowing things that are true, in understanding how the world around us functions. Um, and the thing about homeopathy is that you know and Hopefully, we'll get into what it actually is. Uh, you might think uh, that it's it's always safe because there's there's really nothing in there, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, so, for example, there was a, an infamous case of teething tablets a few years ago, uh, meant for uh, for infants that had too much belladonna in them. They were homeopathic belladonna teething tablets. Uh, so there, there shouldn't be any belladonna left in there, but there were, and belladonna can increase your heart rate, can increase your body temperature, can give you constipation, give you hallucinations. And so there were some very high levels of belladonna in those products uh, because the manufacturing standards of homeopathic products uh, are not uh, at the same level as those for pharmaceutical drugs. In fact, there was a letter by the FDA Uh, A few years ago, there was following inspections of a a manufacturing plant for homeopathy in England that stated that one out of every six bottles was not receiving the dose of quote-unquote active homeopathic drug solution because you know, the whole assembly was wobbling during the filling, so the ingredients were dripping down the outside of the vial. So they were literally getting nothing, uh, one out of every six bottles there. Um, so that's the issue. And then you know, what you brought up earlier, the, the the thing about you know immunization through homeopathy, there is there are things called homeopathic vaccines. They're called nozodes. Um, and they are made from uh, excretions, from, from uh, excreta and, and all kinds of bodily fluids of infected people. People. So somebody with measles, for example, you know, you would get uh, some of their excreta and then you would dilute it and that would be a homeopathic vaccines. They do not work. They do not immunize you. Um, and that's that's potential harm there. You think you're immunized against a, a very serious uh, infection and you're not. And then the last bit of harm that I can think of is disbelief in grand conspiracy theories because... A lot of people, unfortunately, in the, in the alternative health sphere, uh, they do embrace these large conspiracy theories of big pharma. Every scientist who works for the pharmaceutical industry is in the pocket of big pharma and they're hiding the truth about you know natural cancer cures, et cetera, et cetera. So by being part of this community, you can start to feel the pull of, of believing into these grand conspiracy theories that are, that are just not true.
0: I've heard this often with both homeopathy and acupuncture they'll say that western medical research does not have the tools to understand how these interventions work
3: well i mean we do you know the the claims that are being made for homeopathy are absolutely testable within a western scientific framework uh, right so if you if you claim uh, that your uh, your particular remedy for example uh, will help with insomnia uh, that is a testable claim. Uh, you can you can try it. You can give a, a a placebo, so you give a different kind of sugar pill uh, to uh, to some of your participants at random, and the other half gets the the homeopathic uh, insomnia remedy. And then you uh, you you know you can put them in a sleep clinic and test to, to, and measure exactly when they fall asleep, um, and you can see if there's a difference. But but there isn't one. I mean, there was a. I have to mention the, the 1023 campaign, which started in the uh, in England. Um, They did it two years in a row where they did a public, quote unquote, overdose of homeopathic uh, sleeping pills. Um, And uh, it's reassuring to know that nobody died because you can't overdose on homeopathic uh, sleeping tablets because there's nothing in them.
0: Say you come across someone, and I'm sure you have, you preempted it, that says, well, this homeopathic remedy worked for me. And it's someone who conflates natural and homeopathic homeopathy, as you mentioned. Give me your explanation to that person who doesn't actually realize what homeopathy is.
3: Right. So, so when we say it worked for me, um, what, what can often happen is that you're conflating correlation and causation. And something something funny happened a few weeks ago. Um, I'm I'm regularly on on the news here in uh, in Montreal, and I was chatting with the anchor uh, during the break, um, and I was having this this recurrent cough, uh, and she was saying, "So how's the cough going?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm on this uh, this new medication, and the cough has uh, has gone down uh, in in frequency. So you know, it's it's possible that the that the drug is helping, but I I don't know for sure." And she she started to laugh, and she was like, "Well, only you would phrase it in that way." and I was like, well, you know, because because I don't know what the natural history of this particular bit of cough would have been had I not taken this drug. So I'm very careful in saying, you know, there's a correlation there. It may be causative. There's there's a reason to think that it, it's causative, but I don't know for sure. That's why we do uh, big clinical trials, not for the fun of it and to just spend millions of dollars, but because one person's, you know, uh, own experience with something uh, is, they're, they're, it's full of variables that you're not controlling for. And so- somebody says you know this this home you know I had the flu and then I took uh, this bit of otlocoxium which is a homeopathic remedy against flu-like symptoms and I started to feel better the flu went away therefore ostelocoxin worked for me um, you know I would I would, if they were interested of course I'm not going to impose this on someone but if, if they were interested I would say well you know uh, the flu doesn't last forever right it's a self-limiting illness for the most part I mean it does kill some some people every year um, but for the most part your, your immune system kicks in uh, gets rid of the virus and then you're symptoms Symptoms go away, and then you're fine. So whatever you do, uh, your the flu is going to go away. There's an old saying that uh, you know, an, an untreated flu lasts uh, seven days, but with the, the the right medication, it lasts a week. Um, you know, that's the thing about about self-limiting illnesses. There's not much that you can do about them. But if you if if your flu symptoms get to to be at their worst uh you will reach out for whatever you can find and that may be oloccoxin and you start taking it and then of course you start to feel better because your symptoms can only get better after they have been literally statistically at their worst um, so that's one of those placebo effects it's self-limiting illnesses it's regression to the mean um, sometimes it's it's just a psychological investment that you know if you start to see um, a, a particular alternative health practitioner uh, you know you you want it to work and you've invested money in this relationship you want that to work, and so there's a bit of self delusion at play. Sometimes, when the intervention itself doesn't work, you want it to work so much that you you convince yourself that it is working. Uh, there might be a memory bias at play, right? So you remember the days when you felt better, you forget the days when you felt the same or you felt worse, and so you're building this uh, this 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 idea in your head that mm-hmm. is biased toward the intervention working. Whereas if you were keeping a daily diary, for example, and you were rating your symptoms. Uh, on a scale, you might realize that actually uh, you, have, you have had as many uh, improved days before the intervention as you've had after. Uh, so, all of those things can contribute to making you think that an, an, an intervention like homeopathy worked when it actually didn't. You bring up ocelococcinum. I'll be using that in the episode
0: to explain homeopathy because I'm kind of fascinated with this ethical question and I'll pose it to you and see if you have any thoughts on it. If you're a vegetarian or vegan who is anti-pharmaceuticals and you use homeopathic remedies and you are a big fan <laughs> of ocelococcinum, well, you right. can argue that there actually isn't any animal product in it, but there had to be suffering along the way to produce it. Yep. So how, how have you come across this? How do you square that?
3: <laughs> you square this by no longer using homeopathy. That's how I would square it. But uh, but you, you you do raise a good point. So so yeah. So os- what is Oscillococcidum? So if you if you read the Latin, it's called Anas barbariae Hepatis cordis extractum, extractum 200C. And when uh, the Center for Inquiry in the United States did a survey uh, of about 1,000 Americans on the topic of homeopathy, uh, something like 1% of them were able to identify what that meant. And the majority of respondents were like, I have no idea what you just said to me. (laughs) Uh, So it is indeed, it's it's an extract of Muscovy duck liver and heart. It's been diluted one in 100 times, 200 times in a row. Um, And there was an article many years ago, I forget if it was, I think it might've been Forbes, uh, where... Where they, they focused on that one duck that gets sacrificed every year, uh, to make enough oseltamivir for the entire flu season. Uh, and I think it was called the, uh, the $200,000 duck or how, however, I mean, it's more than that. It's t- 2 million. However much money they make off of osteococcinum, that's how much this duck was worth. Uh, so you're right in that there is no molecule of the duck left in the final product. It is, it is a scientific impossibility, uh, but there is a duck that is, that is sacrificed every year so that it, its liver and heart can be, can be harvested. So is that vegan? I, I guess not. Um, there, are, there are worse uh, vegan infractions, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but the bottom line is that it doesn't work and it cannot work. So if you're a vegan, uh, you, may just, you, you can just leave the osteococcinum aside and you will feel exactly the same way.
2: You're
0: severely undervaluing that duck. That duck is worth $20 million in America alone. $20 million, wow. Just in American sales, and it is the number one homeopathic medicine in France. So I don't even know what the sales are there. I mean, you're probably talking about a $100 million mm-hmm. duck. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't, I don't think the duck knows how much it's worth though because it would be having a, a very, uh, it would be surrounded by lawyers and there would be some, 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 some good discussions with the, uh, the homeopathic industry as to how much, uh, how much money its, its family should be getting in the process.
0: <laughs> you, uh, I'll share the video I referenced earlier in the show notes for listeners because you actually line up 200 cups around the pool when, you, when you're actually showing. And I love that video for so many reasons. But uh, there's something else you say in that video, which uh, really struck me. And because I've gotten into arguments with homeopathic practitioners before where they are anti-vax. And I say, well, Samuel Hahnemann was so happy when vaccination science was proven because he thought that it Proved his system as well, and they and then the responses usually end at that point. Now, but you also point out something important because it there is this idea of like cures like that seems to cross over, but vaccines are preemptive and homeopathy. I guess sometimes like the immunization thing with Aaron Rodgers, it seems like it's preemptive, but it's not. Um, but can you explain the difference between vaccines and what homeopathy is?
3: Yeah, I mean, you you bring up a good um, or rather a frequent argument that, yeah, it works just like a vaccine, uh, but it doesn't. So a vaccine gives you an actual bit of the microorganism that causes the disease or the whole microorganism uh, that's been inactivated uh, in order to trigger an immune response uh, and and an immunological memory of this, quote-unquote, attack without giving you the actual disease. Now homeopathy gives you an ingredient that does not cause the disease uh, that is often not related to the disease. And often the ingredient isn't even in there. So there is no immune response that is triggered because these are, uh, they're they're just sugar pills. Um, So, you know, on a very, very superficial levels uh, because of the dilutions that are involved in homeopathy, it may look as if uh, it is a type of immunization, but it really isn't. It does not function in that way at all because there's nothing in there. And the ingredient that was chosen um, is in there because it was triggering uh, you know, the, the symptoms of the disease in somebody who was healthy and thus, by this weird logic, uh, it will cure the disease in people who have it. So it's, it's not like a vaccine at all. A few months ago, a homeopathic practitioner or doctor in uh,
0: California, her name is Julie Mazzi, uh, she allegedly sold unproven vials of pellets for $243. Her claim was that it provided lifelong immunity to COVID-19. Uh, she, when She said she didn't know exactly how it was made, but that there was a very minute amount of COVID-19 in it. And she said it worked better than vaccines because vaccines contain toxic ingredients. (laughs) How, how, How do you counter this idea that vaccines are toxic, but homeopathy is benign or only good?
3: Yeah, so this is uh, the old claim that, uh, for example, the adjuvants that are used in vaccines uh, are toxic because sometimes there's aluminum in there. Um, uh, there was the whole, uh, you know, the whole thing about thimerosal, uh, which is a mercury uh, compound. Um, and what these people often don't understand, or sometimes don't want to understand, is that it's the dose that makes the poison. Uh, we when we we regularly consume things uh, that if you knew they were in our in our fruits and vegetables naturally, uh, you would think twice about biting into an apple, right? But it's because the dose is so small. Um, the thing about 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 homeopathy is that yeah, it just. It it I mean the the claim that there was coronavirus in there in those homeopathic tablets and who knows if that's even true, uh, but you you don't you 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 just you don't work with the coronavirus outside of a, a lab of a certain safety level and I'm sure that that's not what she was doing so uh, b- but but if you believe in homeopathy I mean one of the foundational principles of homeopathy is that uh, the more you dilute a substance the more you get rid of their of its harmful effects while. Routine- the vitalistic essence of the ingredient. So, by that logic, which is not true, um, you know, you would take the coronavirus, you would dilute it so much that you would think that its harmful effects are now completely gone. But somehow, you've kept the vitalistic essence of it, which is not a scientific concept, of course. Um, but that's that's how homeopaths think.
0: You wrote uh, two articles in 2019 about. The problem in Canada with uh, naturopaths and homeopaths influencing pharmacists. And I'm wondering, you went to a series of of different pharmacies and asked people, you know, questions about whether to take our old friend (laughs) Asalokas. <laughs> I always have trouble. Thank you, thank you. I, I sometimes I get it right, um, but how yeah. has ha, have you have you followed up on that story? Is there still homeopathic medicine being sold in pharmacies in Canada?
3: So what I what I was curious to know was how many pharmacies um, in my neck of the woods was selling Oscillocoxin, which is a particularly egregious form of, of homeopathy because again it's 200C, so it's it's one in a one in one hundred dilution done two hundred times in a row uh, based off of some duck liver and, and, and 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 heart. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a particularly nonsensical example. And so I, um, I basically got a list of as many pharmacies as I could find on the island of Montreal. I randomized them, uh, making sure they were representative of all three main parts of the island and that I had enough of each of the main, the big chains uh, in there. And I proceeded to call them uh, to ask them if they had Um So it, and it is possible that some of them said no simply because, I mean, I had to spell this out a number of times. It's possible that they just couldn't find it. And so it's possible that there's more... than than what I found. But um, the, the take home message was that about two thirds of pharmacies in Montreal were selling Ocelococcinum. Um, and what was great is that a, a journalist uh, at La presse which is one of the biggest uh, French language newspapers in Quebec uh, went uh, further after after he uh, heard about this and so he went to uh, 20 pharmacies uh, telling them that his child uh, had the symptoms of the flu and asking the pharmacist should I give my child ocilcoxinum and what he found and what he reported on and this this was front page news um, is that about a third of pharmacists said no that it, it will not work. A third said, maybe uh, some people believe in it. Some people don't. I don't know what to tell you. And then a third said, yes, uh, this this should work. Um, and what was very interesting is that he then, um, as part of his reporting, he questioned all of the cogs in that system because the problem is that nobody wants to take responsibility for this. Um, the pharmacists will say, "Well, um, I'm only in control of what's behind the prescription counter. The rest is a store, and so it's it's the it's the banner really. It's the is the whole uh, store that decides you know what gets." Put on, on shelves, uh, those stores uh, and the, their owners will say, Well, you know, Health Canada, which is our regulatory agency for health products uh, here in Canada, they, uh, they approve these products. So who are we to disagree? And Health Canada will say, Well, you know, it's up to pharmacists to use their expert judgment and guide consumers toward the right choice. So nobody wants to take responsibility for this. But as part of this, uh, this piece for La Presse, Um, uh, the order of pharmacists of Quebec who were confronted with this, uh, had to basically uh, send a letter to all of their pharmacists all over the province and say, you are not allowed to endorse homeopathy uh, you are pharmacists, uh, this is not science-based. Uh, if you are caught endorsing homeopathy, uh, you, there will be uh, potential sanctions. Um, so there was that. Um, and then the other thing was that the uh, there's a, a small organization called the ABCPQ, uh, which is a, an association of uh, pharmacy chains in Quebec uh, so we have things like Shoppers Drugs Mark and, and Uniprix and a bunch of different pharmacies uh, that have a, a lot of stores all over Quebec. And so that association uh, decided to, and, and this is really, I think, I think it's, a, it's a question of having the right person at the right place, uh, you know, being asked the right question by the right journalist. Uh, they decided that they had to do something about this. And so they uh, voluntarily made signs uh, that, uh, that they mailed to every pharmacy in Quebec. Uh, these signs are optional. Um, and the sign basically states that uh, there is no scientific evidence behind homeopathy. Uh, if you need uh, more uh, advice on this, please consult with your pharmacist. Uh, and these signs were meant to be posted right next to the uh, the homeopathy inside of the stores. Um, so that was a very uh, interesting uh, victory. Uh, now, again, those signs are optional. Um, then the pandemic happened. That was two years ago, the pandemic happened. And at my own pharmacy, the sighing went away at some point, and I was um, very. Worried that those signs had just you know um, just just been been uh, trashed, or maybe some homeopathy activists had gone in and removed them all i don 't know um, and what I can say at the moment is that um, I am working on a bit of a follow up i 'm um, working on this with uh, some interesting people who have a very large platform, and what I can say is that uh, many of these signs are still there. And we'll have to see if uh, we can put some uh, an additional bit of pressure uh, to see if more changes can be enacted.
0: Oh, a teaser! I like it. You gotta keep me updated. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Now, Paul Offit wrote that there's no such thing as alternative medicine. There's medicine that works, and then there's everything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's always stuck with me since I read one of his books. Uh, But we see this point where uh, complementary and alternative medicine known as CAM has made real inroads uh, in France at an oncology hospital, which is offering homeopathy uh, next to, uh, or post chemotherapy, potentially to alleviate symptoms. And you have in America, Johns Hopkins, which has a whole CAM Center now, which, which, you know, is investigating them, but also offering uh, acupuncture. I don't know about homeopathy, but they have integrated it into not curriculum, well, curriculum for, uh, for uh, students. Yeah, but for, for patient care. But for patient care, exactly. And we'll, we'll stick specifically to homeopathy. I don't want to bring other modalities into this. But when, when these institutions are now exploring it and offering it for patient care, is do you see this as it being legitimized?
3: Absolutely. Uh, and this is something that really worries me. Uh, you hinted at, at this when you said integrated. Yeah, it's called integrative medicine. Uh, and it is a rebranding. Uh, of uh, alternative medicine, alternative and complementary medicine. Uh, and the, the the main, the foundational idea there is that quote unquote Western medicine uh, is not sufficient. Uh, quote unquote alternative medicine is not sufficient but when you integrate the two together you get the best of both worlds. Um, and um, And that is not true, uh, because as as you pointed out, if the alternative to medicine uh, does not have good evidence behind it and it has not been uh, uh, actually you know naturally integrated into uh, medicine per se, uh, then why are you offering it and and the uh, the, the answer is that. You know, a lot of the people uh, who are in in sort of uh, positions of, of of making decisions uh, in those hospitals uh, probably don't know any better. Uh, they probably have uh, pressure from uh, public uh, adv- from patient advocacy groups, uh, from people who believe in in stuff like homeopathy, uh, and sometimes there's a lot of money into it. Uh, I'm reminded of, I believe it is UC Irvine. Uh, they got a massive donation uh, a few years ago about. four four or five years ago uh, from a donor who is a big believer in alternative medicine. And so, you know, this guy shows up, uh, gives them, I think it's something like $200 million uh, to build a center for integrative medicine on their campus. And so- how would you refuse that kind of money, right? So if somebody shows up with that kind of money because they have you know personally experienced alternative medicine and they believe in it and they want to make sure that it's part of universities and they arrive at a big fat check, uh, which what university is going to make a stand and say, well, no, actually those uh, practices have not been uh, uh, you know uh, scientifically validated or they've been shown to be wrong. I mean, no, you're going to take the money, you're going to build the center. Um, so so unfortunately, that's what's happening is that. These these practices are being legitimized uh, by being part of integrative medicine in major uh, academic health centers in the U.S. and some in Canada as well. Um, and yeah, homeopathy. I remember a few years ago, uh, the Cleveland Clinic is a particular offender. It has a very good reputation, but it, it also has endorsed all kinds of, of nonsense and um, One of their higher-ups, Dr. Daniel Niedis, had written an anti-vaccine screed on Cleveland.com, and that made it into um, a lot of publications like the Washington Post. Um, And that led reporters to investigate the Cleveland Clinic a little bit more, and they noticed that they were selling homeopathic uh, kits in their gift shop in the hospital. And the the Cleveland Clinic had to uh, admit publicly that, yeah, we're we're gonna remove those from the gift shop. But they had been selling them because there's money to be made there. So, That's a a big problem. I know one
0: of your areas of expertise is cancer research. I'm a cancer survivor, uh, testicular cancer about seven years ago. So I went through the process and I I really appreciated my oncologist. Uh, I think any good communicator in terms of cancer, someone like Siddhartha Mukherjee comes to mind, they will tell Mm -hmm. you that uh, chemotherapy is not the best option. It's the best option we have right now and we will develop better therapeutics. There is a sort of religious fervor that happens with, quote-unquote, alternative medicines. But have you seen homeopathic remedies in cancer recovery, and how do you speak to
3: that? I I haven't really. So, I I mean, I I did spend um, a few years uh, working in cancer research, also working in cancer diagnostics, uh, but I was removed from the patients. I mean, I was doing basic research or... Uh, I was part of a lab that was um, running tests on tumors or on blood samples uh, in order to guide uh, doctors in their diagnoses and in their in their prognoses for their patients uh, or on choosing the right therapy for for the patient uh, so i haven 't had that kind of contact, but I mean certainly there is an appeal to complementary medicine uh, if you 're undergoing any kind of treatment for for cancer i mean i I, I've been lucky enough to not have had cancer so far, so I, I haven't gone through chemotherapy. But I know that it is horrible, uh, as you pointed out. It is—it's—it's it's one of the best tools we have, uh, but only because we don't have better tools at the moment. It's—it's it's a bit like uh, like democracy. It's the best system we've got, even though it's not—it's not, not all that great, um, you know. So 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 I understand that if if you're feeling like crap because you know the inner lining of your stomach is being destroyed and you're losing your hair and you're vomiting and it's just it's it's horrible because of how Non-specific it is, relatively speaking, uh, that you're going to be looking for anything to to make life better, and um, and you know I, I I I totally understand people who uh, will jump on on homeopathy, on Reiki, on those kinds of practices uh, in order to feel a little bit better. Um, the problem again is that there's there's no good evidence that they work, and when they are offered by a hospital, as you as you pointed out, it legitimizes the practice. Uh, well outside of of cancer care and and people start to see it as not just a compliment but an alternative to treatment there was a small study that came out a few years ago uh, about this this uh particular thing of you know uh well if if it's a complement to medicine I mean what's the harm and the problem with that they were seeing is that uh, often when something is pegged as uh, complementary medicine uh, within cancer care—it turns out to be an alternative to cancer care because what it is is that you know somebody has cancer; they're being told, "Well, uh, we suggest surgery and and chemotherapy." This is what the the best evidence tells us. Um, what will happen is that people who go for complementary medicine, uh, yeah, it will be a complement to the surgery, but actually it's, it's going to be an alternative to the chemotherapy. So they find themselves refusing chemotherapy and replacing it with homeopathy with herbal medicine. Um, and so so on the outside, it looks like you're complementing your medical care with this thing, but actually it is an alternative to a particular intervention that you didn't like. Um, and these people do uh, more poorly than the people who accept the best uh, you know, medical standard of care. I
0: preempted the last question I have for you with that religious fervor line as well, because we know that I mean, this can happen in any domain, but specifically a lot of the people we cover on Conspirituality, they have a level of certainty to their belief system. And I've found humility in the medical system refreshing. And uh, fortunately, a lot of the doctors I've worked with have had humility about it, which, which I find comforting personally. But we also know the challenges of communicating these ideas across across microphones across, you know, we're in people's ear earbuds right now. And how, so for you as a science communicator specifically, what are the best mechanisms that you believe we have for communicating science
3: in this current environment? Facts do work, um, you know, just bringing up uh, good information from um, as much as possible independent sources uh, can work. Um, using empathy uh, really helps uh, you know i have I have a natural uh, snarkiness about myself. I, I love to be sarcastic, but it 's something that i 've had to tone down um, especially as a science communicator because you know, when was the last time you changed your mind after being called an idiot? Um, you know, it, it, if, you're, if your goal is to persuade, if your goal is to educate, uh, you can't be shaming people or putting them down. Now, obviously there are uh, influencers at the top of this of this pyramid who are making money out of this stuff and who are endorsing these interventions after being told by, by critics time and time again that there's no good evidence behind them. And I think that these people do deserve our scorn and our denunciations. But the people at the bottom who are uh, who are essentially victims of misinformation uh, and who are buying into this stuff, I mean, they they deserve our our empathy and our compassion. I think we need to build relationships of trust with them. Um, you need to make them understand uh, why uh, why we have the opinion that we have. Um, but yeah, facts facts can work uh, using empathy, listening to them, listening to their concerns as well, because sometimes they've turned to alternative medicine. Uh, because they had bad experiences in the, in the medical system. And I can certainly empathize with that. I mean, I've, I've had uh, some bad uh, in- interventions there as well, but I've also had some wonderful uh, doctors too. Um, so I, 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 I can sympathize with that. And so again, bringing this to the table and saying, I get, I get why you are uh, skeptical of, of, of medicine. I've had similar experiences, I understand. But there's a, there's a great saying by Ben Goldacre, which is that uh, just because there are problems with airplanes does not mean that magic carpets can fly. <laughs> and that's, that's really the core of this issue, which is that, yeah, there are problems in medicine. They are real. Uh, they need to be improved, uh, but it doesn't mean that the alternative to medicine, which you know often flies in the face of biology, physics, physics, and chemistry, that that alternative actually works.